0: This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines.
1: Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor for Crosscut. And today we're talking about all the things that divide us and whether coming together is really possible. And I've got to be honest here. And really, this isn't all that controversial a take, but it's incredibly difficult to think that there is is anything other than deeper division in our future. You know, entertaining the idea of national unity, I mean, really the coming together of the American people toward a singular purpose, can kind of feel irresponsible or foolish even. Even the pandemic, something that I thought would bring us together might result in some common ground because it is something that afflicts us all, appears to have only driven us further apart. But I do want to emphasize that word, appears. Because depending on who you are, you might see it differently. And Eric Liu is one of those people who see it differently. The founder and CEO of Citizen University, Liu has an unabiding belief in the ability of people to come together to make their communities, their country, and the world a better place. Where others, like myself, focus on the divisions, Liu searches for connections. And that's why we invited him onto Crosscut's Northwest Newsmakers event series, where earlier this month he spoke with host Monica Guzman, who is another one of those people who sees things differently, about where we are and where he hopes we might be headed. And I've got Monica here now to tell us a little more about this conversation. Hey, Monica.
0: Hey, Mark. How's it going?
1: So, I'm just, you know, I'm just, I'm negative on this stuff. I, I try not to be, but I kind of get pulled into only seeing division. So, I'm, I'm, uh, I really appreciate this conversation. I appreciate you. You are uh, somebody who has a similar worldview to, to our guest today. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, what were you hoping to hear from him in this interview?
0: Well, it's exactly to respond to what you were just getting at. For a lot of folks in this country, there is mounting evidence that we're doomed. We're so divided. We don't know how to come back together. Conversations from the one-on-one level to the big political social level all seem broken. There's lots of reasons to be very pessimistic about it. What could be the reasons to be optimistic? What could be the reasons to be hopeful? What would that take? So what I was looking for was to help people answer that question how can I feel any differently? How can I kind of climb out of this despair? What other way, if I blink, could I look at this world around me that might make me feel like I can be an agent of change still, that there is something bright up ahead of us still, despite all the craziness we've been through? And I think Eric, you know, <laughs> Eric took it in stride and I brought all those curiosities and anxieties to him and, uh, and he went up to bat.
1: So, what was the makeup of the audience? You know, I mean, we had a lot of audience questions for this. Um, did we have mostly, was it, um, you know, people who agree with Eric or people who want to challenge this idea?
0: I recognized a couple of bridge builders in the audience who asked questions. And so, I knew that some oh, of the Oh, this folks, is your,
1: your nomenclature. This okay, is sort of the it.
0: community. Yeah. And I, I knew that a couple of those folks were there. And I definitely saw the people coming in as well who you know, don't even see the first sort of grip uh, on the mountain. A lot of the mm. questions were about how tactically, how, how do I talk to somebody who believes something way over here? If yeah. there's someone out there who I think is acting and behaving out of hate, what the heck is the first step? What, what is my approach there even? So there's a lot of those tactical questions. And then Again, that 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 sort of almost desperate um, search for a more productive perspective and a way to claim that perspective for oneself, despite this mount this like huge mountain of division all around us.
1: Mm. Hmm. All right, so Monica, what was your takeaway from this conversation?
0: Mm. Well, like I said, Eric Eric went to bat. You know, like he he was up there. He started, I remember, and you'll hear it with uh, a pretty optimistic. Answer uh, where he sees the hope. And I felt like, all right, you know, I heard that answer from him and said, okay, let's see if he can actually give us some evidence. Let's see if he can explain to us where he is coming from so that that sort of hopeful view makes sense and doesn't sound like something, you know, almost naive, almost too cheerful. And he was able to do that. And I think he did it in part with something that maybe a lot of us could be inspired by and try to bring more into our own lives and approach to civics, which is courage. Um, there's, I asked him a question about the American identity and the American flag. So I encourage uh, our listeners to really tune into that answer from him because it brings up that theme of courage. Uh, do we have the bravery that it might take to claim our country? Um, another phrase that comes up in a powerful way in this conversation. So I think, Eric, I think Erica did present a perspective of power in the civic role for all of us if we choose to claim it.
1: All right. Well, thanks for sharing some of the thinking behind the conversation, Monica. Um, we hope you all enjoy the conversation. As always, you can reach us at talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show.
0: So, Eric, (laughs) I'm so excited to talk to you today. This is definitely a a wild time and a lot going on. Um, So we've obviously been through a lot these last few years and last few months. So before we get into, you know, the thick of it, I want to know, how are you feeling about America's overall civic health right now?
2: Well, let me start just by saying thanks to you, Monica, to the whole CrossCut team, Aldrin, all all the partners in uh, Cascade Media. I think um, actually, you know, this is, and this is not just pandering to the folks who are tuning in right now. Um, One of the things that gives me some measure of hope is that as broken as national politics has seemed over the last, um, it's not just the last four years, it's been over the last decade plus. um, If you look a little more closely, all around the United States, um, there are um, little buds, sprouts uh, of innovation and uh, reinvention uh, in civic life happening. Um, and Crosscut is one example of that, the way in which um, you know this new approach to civic and public media um, is arising in ways that um, are not just a transplanting of old forms of media and old forms of journalism, uh, but are far more participatory, far more engaging um, of the communities that they're purporting to. Um, report on represent. Um, And then there's just a wide range of participatory everything that's starting to show up, participatory Mm -hmm. budgeting, participatory policymaking, participation uh, in different domains and realms. And, uh, you know, I think uh, because my work both allows me and requires me to look away from the other Washington and at Mm -hmm. um, things that are um, arising across the land, Um, I'm net hopeful, actually, Um, Mm. as as much darkness and challenge as there is. And I'm not naive. I mean, I think we face so many um, compounded, simultaneous, uh, potentially existential crises um, in our country. And our democracy has been revealed to be very fragile um, in in even recent months. Um, And yet, I think there is so much cause for um, hope that the, the resilience um, of the body politic um, though tested um, is still strong and um, you know i think as we get into this conversation more i can tell you more about some of the kinds of people and the kinds of um, activity that i'm seeing that give me that hope but just a uh, um, top line um, i'm not that i'm not you're not that a huge task but i'm <laughs> not, i'm not depressed uh, about the state of the union uh, yeah
0: And we will definitely dig in more into that into the specifics for sure uh first a bit a bit more about you in some ways it and i've been telling people this it seems like you've been thinking about citizenship and civic power before it was cool before confronting our division seemed like a life or death thing for our democracy as i think a lot of people are waking up to that awareness now so take us way back if you can what was the moment that this work became compelling to you
2: you know i think. There was no single moment. Um, you know, I wish there were a cinematic uh, uh, <laughs> epiphany that I could describe and we right, could Right, <laughs> You know, I was uh, uh, but honestly it was the accumulation um, of a lot of things. Um, I'm the child of immigrants. I think that's probably the most important thing to begin with. And uh, my parents were born in mainland China, went to Taiwan during a time of war and upheaval and revolution, came to the United States in the late 1950s and um, and made a life here um, outside of in the upper suburbs of New York City, um, outer suburbs. And um, one of the things that I grew up absorbing, it was rarely vocalized, but it was definitely a sense in the air was basically, I had done, um, all I had done was to have the dumb luck to be born here. Hmm. That it was my parents who had made the hard choice, the parent, my parents who had made the, taken the risk, made the sacrifices. Um, and having had the dumb luck to be born in the United States at a time essentially at the peak of American power, so at the peak of the most powerful nation in the history of the world um, in the late 20th century, um, the question that was kind of implicit was well, what am I going to do to be useful? What am I going to do to kind of earn it uh, and, and, um, and, make all of that risk and sacrifice somewhat worth it and um and so that was a deep unspoken sense that was just in the way that uh, I, I grew up um in chinese there's a um, there's a phrase that uh, no kid likes to hear which is Mei yong, which mm. in mandarin in mandarin it just means useless you don't want to be called useless mm. um whether that's because you're shirking doing the chores uh, or because it's you're shirking showing up for community when people need your help like don't be useless you know Uh, And I think the affirmative of of that uh, um, trying every which way to be useful um, uh, was a big part of my second generation Chinese-American household. Mm -hmm. Um, My specific exposure to politics and government didn't come till I was in college. Uh, In high school, I was involved in things, but uh, not particularly civically. Um, and, And it was college that first exposed me to Washington, D.C., to government, to, uh, to policymaking. Um, and, uh, of course, as you said in my bio, I spent a, a bunch of formative years um, in D.C. working in government for uh, President Clinton and um, before that in the Senate. Um, but I will tell you, um, first, you know, those are the things that are in my bio, my White House, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, but by far the greatest part of my formation and education as a citizen, as someone who thinks about um civic life and power and responsibility. And By the way, when I say citizen, and I talk about our organization, Citizen University, you see that sign behind me, Citizen Power now. Um, I'm not talking about documentation status. I'm not talking about passport holding um, United States citizen. I mean citizen in the deeper ethical sense of, are you a member of the body? Are you a contributor to community? Someone who takes responsibility for what's happening uh, all around you. And I would say that it's been the 20 and a half years that I've lived in Seattle. Um, that have been my best school of democratic citizenship. Mm. Um, and that's partly because I raised my hand and joined things like the library board and the state board of ed and so on and so forth. But it's also because I just got woven into, into networks of friends and trust and relationship where mm. we looked at each other and we looked around and we thought, we gotta do something about this. We gotta do something about um, the, the scourge of gun violence. We gotta do something about um, the fact that there's declining uh, support for public schools Um, you know, in our city with so many kids in private schools, we've got to do something about these things. And um, I'll tell you, being on the library board while we were implementing the bond measure libraries for all that built and renovated all of our branch libraries in the downtown central library, that's worth five state of the unions. That's worth five federal budget processes. That's worth, you know, uh, uh, years and years working in the Senate on parliamentary procedures. Like um, actually having to roll up your sleeves in a way that's not about Mm -hmm. um, just positioning and talking points. But are you going to build this or not? And is it going to be what the people in Ballard or in the International District uh, or in South Park need and want, hope and dream for in a library? Mm -hmm. Um, The rubber meets the road in a different way there. Um, in local yeah, there's something things.
0: about local, right? You can feel yeah. the impact more. So, so turning toward democracy, which is you know a big part of your work and a big part of the backdrop for all local, all kind of action really in this country. One of our readers, uh, the, the the way that she put it ahead of this conversation, to her, the idea of democracy has taken some body blows lately. Uh, that may be putting it mildly. There's the loss of faith in our institutions. The 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 Capitol Hill riots, the the Capitol riots that happened in January, the fractured sense of reality. You call yourself hopeful, not optimistic, you've said, because optimism is for spectators. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I've got to ask, and and I I hope you can be candid here, which of these body blows have brought a hopeful Eric Liu closest to the despair that many Americans do feel?
2: You know, I think... Actually, uh, watching not only uh, the ways in which the former guy uh, in the Oval Office um, undermined norms of, uh, undermined so many norms, but actually to me, the deeper uh, uh, disease, it's actually, body blow is not the physical metaphor I would use.
0: Um,
2: Infection, metastasis, um, are, are-
0: What's that? Pandemic.
2: Pandemic. You know, are are more the metaphors, and I think, um, you know, the viral spread of conspiracy thinking, the viral spread of the big lie um, that this past uh, election, the presidential election, was stolen, um, was the result of fraud. Um, seeing the ways in which um, an, a nearly unshakable uh, hardcore. Uh, of Americans, of tens of millions of Americans, um, are wedded to that um, is incredibly sobering. Um, and it really makes you realize that, uh, um, you know, I think if you take the longer view of American history, that hardcore has always been there. They used to be called John Birchers, uh, they used to be called, you know, Klan members, um, they used to be called uh, many other things. Um, uh, but I think. That strong core of people who do not want to hear facts, do not want to face the nation as it is, um, but are operating purely um, from a sense of uh, often racially motivated grievance um, and a sense of zero sum thinking that makes them think that, you know, any inclusion in or society must work to their net harm. Um, that's a virus. That way of thinking and being is a virus. Um, and it's got to be contained. Um, and I think that um, now that doesn't mean that the people who've been infected are are all irredeemable. Um, people get infected and people can get better. Uh, but I think one of the things that we've got to be able to say honestly about ourselves in the United States is is that kind of thinking and that kind of uh, attitude that isn't really for democracy. It's for my guy winning because my guy's giving the big middle finger um, to this new emerging multicultural America is giving the big middle finger, um, to, uh, you know, all of this change that I don't like. Um, and if the only way my guy can get in there, um, is in anti-democratic ways, so be it. Um, and I'll make up whatever story makes me feel good about that result. That's a dangerous, um, uh, thing to let spread in the body politic. And, um, and we've got to try to, um, unwind that. And, you know, Our work at Citizen University, just to back up a step, you used the word a moment ago, Monica, faith. Faith in institutions is declining, right? Mm -hmm. So much of our work at Citizen University is about trying to build a culture of powerful, responsible citizenship. And that depends on faith. Democracy works only if enough of us actually believe democracy works. If we do, then we have a chance at making this thing mean something, making the words of the Constitution actually uh, come to life. If we don't, If we don't, if we assume that the game is rigged, we make it so. If we assume that everything is a lie and everything's fake news, we make it easier for authoritarians and demagogues to manipulate us into believing that that's the case, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so, but the thing about cultivating or rejuvenating faith in democracy is it can't just be a matter of me wagging my finger and saying, believe more in democracy. Mm -hmm. Like, you should believe better and believe harder. No. There is a reason why people don't believe anymore. Our institutions have gotten unresponsive. Our economy has gotten so unequal and so rigged in ways that have left huge numbers of Americans out of any notion of the American dream, right? There's a reason for that, but the way that we redeem that faith is to be honest about what's broken and then to take responsibility together for trying to fix it Um, without scapegoating, without fantasy solutions, without imagining that there are child-eating conspiracists out there who are trying to do all this harm to us, but just by saying, look, things are broken and no one's coming to save us except us deciding to show up together. Yes. And as a university, we're trying to get people, conservative, liberal, rural, urban, red, blue places to come together and rehumanize civic life in a way that provides at least the basis for, it, for us to begin again to try to deal with common problems in common ways.
0: Oh, so let's talk about that. Let's troubleshoot that. One of the more popular questions we got ahead of this event was just how, how, how do we talk across these big divides? I mean, you talked about the big lie, right? There, there are there are folks on either side who believe vastly different things and are quite convinced of it. So, so yeah. let's let's do a scenario here if we can. Um, let's troubleshoot this for everyone watching. Let's say you know you have a strong opinion. You're full to bursting with it. You open social media to share it. Let's say you're real concerned about one of two things. Either you believe, A, that there there is voter fraud to guard against. Maybe it's not that egregious, but you're really concerned. And laws like the ones Georgia passed to regulate voting are a step in the right direction. Or you believe that there's voter suppression to fight off. And Georgia's law is just one more body blow to democracy, one more infection. So what do you do with that opinion? How do you share it? What do you do with the conversation it sparks?
2: So... I think if you're at that point and that is your form of engagement, and you're wondering what the result will be of that form of engagement, you've already pretty well narrowed the field mm, of what talk is possible. More about
0: that. You're talking about social media.
2: Yeah, social media. If you're, you know, I, I think the answer is long before you get to the point where you think that the way for you to participate meaningfully is to post an opinion on social media and then hope that you don't create a giant storm of. You know, okay. counter accusation and counter conspiracy thinking. Um, you're you're late in the game, and you're working with very little. Um, I, I think the way that we've got to do this and um, is coming f- much farther up the pipeline, much farther up the process here. When I spoke of rehumanization, um, I think one of the most important things in any well in any democratic society, but especially a um, a, a diverse, multiracial, multi-faith one like our own. Um, is that you've got to first spend a huge proportion of time building trust and relationship.
0: Mm-hmm. Trust and relationship. And can I, you build that on social media? To what extent? Well, can? I, I don't know
2: that you can right off the bat. I think that the way, um, but look, I think you can do things. I'm not saying that everything has to be in person. Um, the pandemic has taught us plenty of relationship building and rehumanization can happen um, through this kind of medium. But, you know, one of our programs at Citizen University is called Civic Saturdays. And these are gatherings that are essentially a civic analog to a faith gathering. Um, It's not church or synagogue or mosque, but it has the arc and the flow and the feeling of a faith gathering where everybody's welcome. And you end up next to, either in a real room or online, um, a stranger um, with whom you don't know whether you share worldview, faith, values, whatever. But your first questions that you're asked are not do you think that uh, Georgia is uh, fraudulent, or, or you know, vote, suppressing voters, or or guarding against legitimate fraud? The first question is something that is deeply human and cutting through small talk, cutting through pretense. Like, what are you afraid of right now in your life? Who are you responsible for in your life? Who are you letting down right now? Right? And these questions, they just come right in a way that just makes people deal with each other in a different way. And that's a different basis on which, you know, who shaped you most? How do you try to pass that on? Right. Those kinds of questions get you both in a different level than social media, particularly political social media, um, primes us to to be in. Um, But what they also do is they open our heart channel. Right. They open our hearts in a way that allow us to say, okay, well, in a little while, I'm going to learn that you and I voted for very different people, and you and I believe very different things, but I already learned that you and I were shaped by the same kind of trauma early in our lives. I already learned that you and I are worried about the same kinds of things happening uh, to our children um, right now. I already learned that you and I have struggled with the same kind of um, problems of addiction or job loss or you know, uh, uh, health in our families, and and so on and so forth, and that's a basis from which then to rehumanize. That's step one. Step two, and this is long before you get to a Facebook post. Step two is then building a certain set of skills of how actually to listen and engage constructively. You're involved with an organization called Braver Angels that does this, but that by design, bringing red and blue people together for structured uh, interactions um, at the Aspen Institute, which is a think tank base in D.C. Um, uh, we and um, our partners at uh, Allstate and Facing History and ourselves have launched something called the Better Arguments Project. The Better Arguments Project has the premise that, look, it's okay to argue in American civic life. America is an argument. The point of being an American is to argue all the time about what does it mean to be an American, right? We just have
0: to argue well somehow, right?
2: The the point is not to have Exactly. Our job should not be to have fewer arguments. It should be to have less stupid ones.
0: Mm. And
2: less stupid arguments, there's actually a way to do that. There are steps and principles and methods that you can actually do to ground yourself um, in history, to ground yourself in emotional uh, reality and relationship, um, and to start in a different way about how you get to these questions. But again, long before you get to arguments about voting, about immigration, about vaccination, about taxes, we've got to spend a far deeper amount of time building trust and relationship. And that's why so much of our work at Civic Saturdays, and we've trained 125 people now around the country to lead Civic Saturdays in their own communities, um, is emphasizing place, people, and community first. Not to pretend that, oh, we're going to be apartisan, politics is something else. No, politics will seep its way in uh, eventually. But We've got to first tend to that, you know, the heart side um, of civic life if we're going to have a shot at healing the whole body politic.
1: We'll be back with more after this.
0: Ready to take your travels to the next level? Alaska Airlines is committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey, from mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and everything in between. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. So you mentioned that politics will seep its way in eventually. I want to turn to Seattle a bit and to our area and its political character back in um maybe less strenuous times you called seattle a a goldilocks town uh we're not too big we're not too small we're not too hot we're not too cold but we are a pretty deep shade of blue (laughs) when you look at the whole spectrum with red so silent sometimes it seems like it's barely even here when it comes to this question of what divides us and what can unite us and particularly how seattleites relate to the rest of the state the rest of the country is that a problem? To what extent is that something we need to pay attention to?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a problem anytime any community gets too homogenous. Mm. And the homogeneity of Seattle um, is both ideological and increasingly demographic. Um, you know, when I said those words about Seattle, um, that was before this incredible Amazon-led tech boom that we've been in mm. over the last decade, decade and, right. and mm-hmm. a half. And, You know, that has transformed um, every dimension of the character and and the spirit of our community. When I first moved to Seattle um, in 2000, you know, the discussion then was how this city had just been in the process of digesting um, all of the wealth created by that the prior tech boom, the Microsoft tech boom. Um, And all the the phrase then was Microsoft millionaires were changing the character of the city and, you know, and... um, you know, South Lake Union at the time, um, you know, in the mid nineties, there was a proposal to turn a lot of what's now, you know, Amazon land in South Lake Union, but back then was just low slung industrial buildings and uh, and so forth, to turn that into a kind of a, Seattle's version of Central Park, right? Yeah. Uh, in, In a project called the Seattle Commons. And that thing got shot down because there was so much resentment and resistance at all of this new wealth and fancy people wanting a nice fancy park. Ironic how it turned out. By by voting that down, it just cleared the way for Paul Allen to say, "Okay, well, I guess I'll turn this into office complexes for you know the giant tech boom that's coming," Um, and that's only hastened the um, homogenization uh, Mm -hmm. of our city. So, Um, how do
0: we? What do we do about that? Because it's not the kind of thing that one citizen can change very quickly.
2: No, it's not. But I think there's two things that we can do for those of us who live in Seattle right now. First of all, for people like you and me, Monica, who've been here a little longer than five years, mm-hmm. um, we have a kind of a an affirmative responsibility um, to acculturate the newcomers to Seattle into a civic sense of what it means to show up in this community. When I moved here 20 years ago, um, there was still a strong enough sense that hey, you can't just come in here as a fancy guy from D.C. and assume that like everybody's going to think you're cool. You got to show up at stuff. You got to go to you got to go to community level meetings. You got to join. Um, your your local district Democrats meeting. You've got to go um, and uh, you know participate in the school levy and so forth. Uh, and I would say that huge numbers of this current wave of young, super educated tech um, newcomers um, go to work, go back home, and are not connected enough to the texture in the civic life, the arts life, the um, education life, um, the social services life um, of their neighborhoods and of the city as a whole. Um, And so we who've been here longer have to do this, not in a way of, hey, you guys are bad, but more in a way of welcome. It's so great you're here. We wanna bring you into the fold here. We want you to join this committee. We want you to be part of this board. We want you to show up at this gathering in your neighborhood. We wanna see you, we want your voice there, right? And start building um, that, that sense of shared responsibility taking, that's one. I think the other though, I mean, to your point about even if you do that, it's still lots and lots of people showing up at meetings and the rest. Um, You know, I think we've got to put um, more of an intentional effort into circulating capital of every kind. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm a big believer, um, you know, the the, the so-called head tax, uh, you know, the Amazon tax um, that was shot down last year in the city council. Um, You can argue about, you know, how well thought out it was and whether, Um, The revenues that would have been raised for that uh, were going to, you know, sufficient uh, useful purposes. But the principle of we have an incredible windfall and an incredible um, imbalance uh, of wealth in the city. um, And we've got to find ways to circulate that wealth into the rest of the life of the city. I agree with that completely. Um, I I think we've got to do that. And not just to address the obvious crises like homelessness um, and, and all the people who are unhoused and uh, and not getting either the supportive housing or the wraparound services that they need to be able to rebuild a life but also quite frankly because you know circulation of capital is not just about money circulation of capital is about you know in the central district if if your viewers don't know of Wanawari, um uh, this wonderful yep. it's a home it's a it's a it's a uh, you know in the central district which has had been the traditionally african-american heart of Seattle, um, and has been gentrified and whitened and and everything else over the last 10, 15 years. Wanawari is a house owned by a black family that's been um, converted into essentially a community uh, art center, um, highlighting the creativity, the voice, the the gifts of um, artists of color and creators and uh, building a really beautiful, multiracial, beloved community there, right? Everybody in this community should be circulating efforts, time, money, and so forth into making sure that places like Wanawari, places Projects like Africatown, uh, renovations like the Liberty Bank building um, in the Central District um, get a chance to thrive. Um, There are equivalents like this in South Park. South Park is going to get gentrified soon enough. And the remaining uh, Hispanic and Latino community in the city uh, need to make sure there's support um, for the voices, the stories, um, the the histories and traditions um, that, that are part of the city's life but not often told. Chinatown and the international district, the same thing, right? And so circulating power in a way that ensures that we enable there to be enough diversity preserved in our community so that this does not just become a giant kind of version of the east side tech campuses that Microsoft has, Mm -hmm. Um, that we remain a city with messiness, with diversity, with um, complexity. Um, and uh, doing that is a matter both of public policy, but also of citizen responsibility taking.
0: So another way that Seattle comes up uh, in this discussion, and and pulling us back to the the maybe the kind of darker red blue divide you know that exists nationally, um, is this this uh, over the last year we've seen it a lot. Seattle keeps turning up in the headlines um, around. The racial justice protests last summer, CHOP, the Capitol Hill-occupied protest, became this hot spot for debates on violence and defunding the police. Fox News has done several stories painting Seattle as this cautionary tale of critical race theory going too far. Um, you know, Seattle pushes the envelope in a lot of ways. I'm gonna ask you a flat question knowing that you're gonna make it complex. Um, is Seattle's role in these debates um, as a flashpoint a sign that we're ahead? On building a good society or behind on building a united one?
2: Hmm, what a great question. Um, I think Seattle's, I think the caricature of Seattle in particularly right wing national media outlets um, is a sign that, um, you know, right wing national media outlets need to create straw men and boogeymen. Mm. Um, uh, but what is true of right wing national media outlets is true also of left wing um, national media outlets. I think. Homogeneity breeds uh, myopia Mm. Um, and not understanding um, how people from the other side or of a different party might see the world or think things um, uh, makes you weaker and stupider. Um, And that is as true um, in the parts of our city and state where people are and country where people are, you know, get where people learn about the world through the gospel of Fox News. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just as true as uh, of people who um only consume um you know left-wing uh media content i I think one of the things that we've got to be able to do now um and this is hard in terms of in terms of a residential thing you you can't uh you know we're not going to have a i mean it'd be an interesting program but you're not going to have a program to say hey seattle is going to provide you know uh uh uh, discounts for people to buy homes in in, in the city if you are a conservative right (laughs) We're we're not going to do that. But I think we can take uh, ownership of, again, our own responsibility. Um, Back to the media content, like there was an ad campaign when I was growing up in the 70s that was about food and ecology. But it is true also about our media diet. And and the line was, you are what you eat. And if all you eat is monoculture left wing or monoculture right wing stuff, um, you're not healthy. Uh, and if you can only see that solutions come from one side of the brain, left or right, um, then you are half blind. Uh, You know, life requires binocular vision, Um, and politics doesn't always require 50-50 binocular solutions, Um, but I think um, you get into trouble when you think only um, your side um, has the answers to stuff. Uh, I am, P.S., I'm a progressive Democrat. Like, my views on you know, I co-founded a gun responsibility organization. I was one of the leaders for the fight for 15 um, in our in our city, and and popularizing the arguments for that nationally. Um, uh, I was an early champion for things like referendum 74, the marriage equality referendum in our state. Um, so you know, I, I take a backseat to nobody on kind of having those you know boxes checked as having good progressive views and, and policy positions, uh, but. I will tell you that I have been formed, shaped, and enriched as a participant in our democracy by my friends who are conservative mm. or libertarian, um, who are um, uh, you know independent and, and mixed in their way of seeing things.
0: And I think a lot of viewers, I mean, some, several of them will say, "Oh my gosh, he has he's he's very progressive, and he has friends who are conservative." Like that's how deep the divide. I have is.
2: friends. I have colleagues. Uh, you know, just yesterday I did a, a webinar with. Uh, a fellow named Pete Peterson, who's the Dean of the Public Policy School at Pepperdine University, um, who has led a project called the American Project that's trying to reimagine conservatism in what they call a, cons- a conservatism of connection. That, and there's an interesting thing happening if you look and listen and read in some precincts of the conservative movement. And people are saying, you know what? Free market neoliberalism has turned out to be a terrible thing. Free markets unconstrained have turned out to erode our families, erode our traditions, erode trust, erode community, and we need to start thinking about community again. And there's an interesting conversation that's bubbling up on the right that, quite frankly, more than a few residents of CHOP and CHAZ last summer would have agreed with. Mm. They would have said, yes, enough of this top-down stuff. Yes, enough of this yes. just letting either markets or the state dictate things. We've got to be self-reliant organizers of our own community in our own place. And those people would never acknowledge mm-hmm. that they should be in the same room together having a conversation. But because I know people in both those worlds, I'm looking and I'm thinking, you know what, there are dots to connect here. And again, we're not that, more solution right. that everybody comes to consensus, but a point of realization that um, sometimes our politics doesn't have to operate on a left right line. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's more of a circle. <laughs> um, and people who are um, fed up with things from the far left uh, and, you know, signing on with Bernie and people who are fed up with things on the far right and signing up with uh, a, a Trump um, will find more than a little bit of overlap um, in what their diagnosis is, but also maybe the solutions they'd be open to, to contemplating.
0: So let's talk about the, the, the one identity that does unify, uh, in theory anyway, uh, folks across the political spectrum, and that's the American identity. I want to share with you two, two anecdotes um, over the last several months. I told one friend on the political left my concern that when some folks see the American flag uh, being carried, they might think that the person holding it might be racist. And her response was, yeah, I would think they're racist. That kind of took me back. Another story, uh, a friend of mine who recently bought a house in Seattle, the house had a flagpole and the American flag was on that flagpole. She took that flag down, worried about what her neighbors might think. She's also on the political left. Eric, what is going on with the American identity Uh, and what do you do about it?
2: One of the um, books that uh, uh, Nick Hanauer and I wrote, um, actually the first book that we did together was called The True Patriot. And we wrote this in 2006, 2007, um, at a time when George W. Bush was president, when Democrats nationally were hapless and helpless. Um, And one measure of what was so frustrating about our politics at that time was the extent to which one party at that time, the Republican Party, um, had taken hold of the flag and the signs and symbols of patriotism, um, which was bad enough but that the other party had affirmatively run away from those very same symbols and signs.
0: Right, yeah. Um, and
2: had kind of become allergic to any notion of patriotism. And our argument in that little pamphlet was that, it, that is, it can, you can flip the labels of the parties about which, you know at different times in American history, one party or another has held and grabbed the flag and the other has run away from it. But um, it is a bad thing for the country when that happens, when one side thinks it has a monopoly on patriotism and the other, responding to that confirms it and runs away from patriotism right and i think the reason why so many on the left have um i mean it goes back more than this era i mean it goes back at least to the vietnam era um but i think one of the things that is going on is a misconstrual of what true patriotism is true patriotism is not chest-thumping militaristic jingoistic like we're number one yeah you know chanting usa true patriotism is recognizing that this is a country founded on a creed on a set of promises and ideals. And the only measure of whether you're a patriot is, are you pushing our country and our communities every day to close the gap between our actual community life and practices and that creed, Mm. right? True patriotism is not my country right or wrong. It's my country when right to be kept right, when wrong to be set right. And that second part, I think a lot of progressives are down with, like, They're down with pointing out what's wrong. They're down with pointing out what's broken. They're down with trying to repair that. That's called patriotism. Mm -hmm. There's been no greater patriot in our lifetimes than uh, people like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. There's been no greater patriots than people like John Lewis. There's been no greater patriots than people who have um, closed that gap between our creed and our deeds. And that's one of the big reasons why Um, I'm sorry for your friends and I'm sorry what your friends might think if they walk past my house, but I've been flying a flag uh, in front, an American flag in front of my house Mm -hmm. for, you know, 15 years Mm -hmm. um, since I wrote that book Um, for just this reason, to invite conversation, to um, make people stop and think about what it means to embrace the ideal uh, of true patriotism. And look, true patriotism, closing that gap doesn't mean therefore signing up with a Democratic Party platform. There are, again, conservative mm-hmm. ways to close that gap also. There are faith-based ways to close that gap. There are bottom-up, volunteer, voluntaristic, um, neighbor-to-neighbor ways to close that gap. Um, the only choice is not between Republican or Democratic ways of closing the gap. It's p- between people who sit back and watch this show and think, what a, what a joke. I'm just going to sit mm-hmm. here and be, decry the whole yeah, thing. Here's the and bad guy. Lean in the and take guy. responsibility yeah. for trying to own it and fix it and sit and, and fix things.
0: So after the mass shootings in the mass shooting in Atlanta, which was man, just was very recent. Six of the eight victims were Asian. You encouraged Asian Americans to claim this country. So I want to ask you about that. As the son of of immigrants from China, as you mentioned, you offered a, a fascinating reason why they should claim the country, uh, and, and it was a contrast. You said, "America makes Chinese Americans. China does not make American Chinese." Advocates have counted more than 3,800 hate incidents against Asians in the last year in America. How do you claim a country that should already be yours?
2: Uh, You take a page from the book that African-Americans have written from um, long before emancipation. How do you claim a country that should be yours? Mm. You show up, you organize, you use the tools of the law you use the tools of civil disobedience, you build power, you you push against injustice, you activate um, social norms and shift social norms so that people stop thinking it's okay uh, that this disfavored group is always disfavored. Um, you begin to mobilize money uh, in ways that uh, make people sit up and listen and realize something is at stake here. Um, you practice citizenship, small c citizenship, um, I spoke at a rally this weekend uh, to stop Asian hate, uh, and my message, which was semi-extemporaneous because I looked around at this beautiful uh, gathering of people at Hing Hei Park in, in Seattle's uh, International District, Chinatown, and people had come to that rally um, just like they'd been coming for the last four-plus years with all kinds of homemade signs and all kinds of messages, uh, and the messages, uh, for the most part, were in the negative, stop Asian hate never forget, um, you know, prevent, um, you know, abuse of our elders and so forth. And I said, I look at this and I see the beginnings of an incredible building of power and identity and mutual aid, but we've got to imagine something different and beyond simply stop this, never again, no more this. We've got to affirmatively claim the country by showing up at meetings, by voting more if we can, by organizing rallies, by educating people on our past and our shared history in a way so that you're not just saying stop this, but build that. You're not just saying never this, but always this, right? Always justice. Let us always have inclusion. Let us always have a sense in which Asian Americans, um, we recognize that in a time where China and America are the great poles of kind of gravity and, and conflict in the world, there's nothing more American than an Asian American dream right now, right? and That line that you quoted of mine earlier, um, my point was that for all that's defective and broken about American culture and politics right now, um, as a Chinese American, I will say this, we still have, if we don't blow it, an exceptional competitive advantage in the United States that can be summarized that way, which is America makes Chinese Americans. China does not make American Chinese. It's not in their operating system or in their mindset or their wheelhouse to take newcomers like you you could get fluent in mandarin mm-hmm. and move to shanghai and spend the rest of your life there you will never be chinese yeah right but mm-hmm. but you and your family your ancestors came to the united states and not only learn the ways of this country but change the ways of this country change the voice change the timbre change the sound the palate the spirit mm-hmm. of this country and that's how you claimed America, right? And that's
0: part and, of the creed that draws immigrants in to begin with, right? That's
2: right. That's right. And I so, think we have got to recommit our, to, in our faith to that. But for Asian Americans, a lot of whom have been raised in our families to kind of keep our heads down and not get involved in political and civic stuff, mm-hmm. um, I think many, many of us have awakened that there is no choice now but to step forward. There is no choice but to raise our voices and to do so together, not alone, um, and with a long view in mind.
0: So we're going to move to reader questions and we've got some really great ones. So uh, in the interest of trying to get to as many of them, um, let's see if we can, Oh, well, let's see if we can do that. Let's see if we can yeah. kind of. Okay. I, I
2: will, you're saying stop
0: filibustering. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask about the filibuster, but we're out of time. Um, all right, so our reader, Sarah Potter, asked this very challenging one. She said, when I think of the people who participated in the January 6th insurrection, I wonder how I would have reacted had Trump refused to step down and successfully thwarted the transfer of power. Is there a time when civil violence against the government is appropriate? Good luck answering that one fast. (laughs) Yeah. Uh,
2: I mean, there's, I, I mean, the theoretical answer is of course, yes, there is a time um uh, and that's not just in the life of the united states i mean i think if you see what's happening in uh, myanmar right now um mm-hmm. if you think about what's been happening in russia um the illegitimate suppression of democratically um uh, elected governments or the illegitimate uh, detention of pro democracy activists if you th- think what's happening in hong kong right now um uh, there's a time where if you think about the <laughs> i mean if you think about the story of the american revolution uh the answer would be yes there is a time when violence against uh, uh, a, 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 an inherited, constructed civil government is uh, legitimate and appropriate. Um, but I think just because that is theoretically true, yeah. um, well, actually, precisely because that's theoretically true, we have an incredible burden in the United States to not be casual about that rhetoric, mm. right? And that's one of the dangerous, among the many dangerous things about the January 6th insurrectionists, is that they've all kind of gotten into this kind of revolution, kind of revolution cosplay, you know, they, they, they think they're acting like the patriots of 1775 and 76. Um, they think they're being oppressed and they think there's tyranny all around them, and they're not, mm-hmm. right? And maybe they're not getting their stimulus check fast enough. Maybe they're mad because, um, you know, a, a plant uh, uh, globalized its jobs and offshore their jobs to Vietnam or to Mexico, and they're mad at somebody. Um, maybe they don't like having a black president uh, and, and they're threatened. Um, may, maybe there, you know, there's a lot of things that are maybe, but this is not tyranny at the scale uh, of King George, um, and, and the stamp act and, uh, and, and so forth, right. To the, 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 or the Boston massacre. Um, and so we have a responsibility to be very careful how we talk about revolution, mm-hmm. um, and revolution as a matter of mindset, heart set norms, values. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Revolution as a matter of armed uprising against the authorities. You know what? Um, you play with fire when you go there, right? And I think the thing that we've got to be able and willing to do, and this is why, you know, I am still in ways that I know are maybe less popular with the younger generation of activists, but there is a deep rigor and wisdom to the commitment that King and Gandhi had to nonviolence, Mm -hmm. the commitment that John Lewis had to nonviolence. It may look to a younger generation today like weakness or softness or not enough kind of ideological commitment to the cause, But it's not. It's deeply challenging to make that commitment uh, and to recognize that the moral power of a cause Mm -hmm. um, can be quickly dissipated and spent down um, if you just start justifying uh, violence at the drop of a hat. Mm -hmm. Case in point, the insurrectionists of January 6th, right? Uh, That is
0: an escalation, right. So I want to move to the next one. Thank you for that. Mirna Eden asks, what is the most important lesson we can learn from this past year? of deprivation and suffering on so many levels?
2: I think the most important lesson is you are not alone. Hmm. This year has made so many people feel so isolated and alone, helpless, depressed, anxious, fearful, the loss of life, the loss of opportunity, staggering beyond belief you know and um and it's really natural and that's just compounding what was already a deep american sickness of loneliness and isolation Mm -hmm. i mean pre-pandemic we were already sick because of how lonely isolated and kind of manipulable we were by demagogues and by outrage machines left and right Um, and how easy it was for us to mistake sitting alone and scrolling through social media for being connected to others Mm -hmm. Um, and Then the pandemic came. But the upside of the pandemic is that it reminded us of the power of mutual aid. It reminded us um, that people will rush to help one another when we're hurting. And it reminded us that we can't solve anything on our own, Um, that we've got to pull together in different ways and hold each other. And that the kinds of applause that we gave for um, frontline medical workers and essential workers at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, maybe that spirit has dissipated. Uh, But I think we've all learned in a deep, deep way that sunk in um, that there's no such thing as someone else's problem. Mm -hmm. In the pandemic, you realize we're all better off when we're all better off. You can't say, oh, well, bummer for those poor minimum wage uh, workers at restaurants and hospitals uh, that they can't get health care treatment or health, health, health insurance. Bummer for them. I'm glad I'm not them. In a pandemic, you are them because they are just one degree separated from you because they will take care of your grandmother, because they will clean your house, because they will be um, you know, on the bus with you. Um, and so in a pandemic, we are reminded of how connected we are. And that's the other side of you are not alone, right? Mm-hmm. You're not alone is both, you're not helpless and isolated, but you are not alone also means the world doesn't revolve around you, dude. You mm-hmm. don't get to build a private bubble of shelter, security, and safety and think I'm good. Like I've taken care of number one. Mm-hmm. You know, if you couldn't, that's your problem, right? Um, and I think that is the uh, both sides of you are not alone um, have been shattered during this pandemic. And in um, our work at Citizen University on a kind of civic ethical level is to remind each other all the time about both meanings of you are not alone.
0: Thank you. I think that's a great, that's a great point to end on. Thank you, Eric Lou, so much uh, for joining us and talking about all these all these tough things, but also maybe hopeful things uh, and the ways that we can make, these tough things, hopeful. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Eric.
2: Thank you so much, Monica. It's been great to talk with you.
1: And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Eric for the chat. And thanks also to the folks in the audience for their questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future Crosscut event, including the Crosscut Festival, which is coming in May, go to crosscut.com slash events. This episode of Crosscut Talks was engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. The event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Mira. Mason Bryan provided research assistance, and Ann Krisnovich and Mo Klaub managed our audience engagement. If you'd like to subscribe to Crosscut Talks, you can do just that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Baumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.